Hi and welcome to the podcast, you're having tea with Alice. This week's episode is with David O'Doherty who is a comedian and musician. We had a really fascinating conversation in quite a noisy tea shop in Melbourne. Uh, I just love his work, I think he's one of the first comedians who I really uh, was blown away by and uh, I hope you enjoy the conversation we had. Uh, thank you, everybody, who has been emailing me, alicerfraser at gmail.com. Uh, tweet me at alliterative, A-L-I-T-E-R-A-T-I-V-E, or Patreon, patreon.com slash alicefraser are the places you can reach me. And uh, thank you, everyone, who's been signing up at the uh, Skype conversation level. I've been having some really interesting chats with you, which is a delight. Um my podcast, uh, the trilogy, the Alice Fraser trilogy, has been nominated for an Australian Podcast Award, which is a really lovely thing. So thank you if you are a judge on that. I don't know how that works, but um, I feel very happy about that. All right, that's enough from me this week. I will see you next week. You're having tea with Alice. Hello, who are you and what are you drinking? Hello, my name is David O'Doherty, and I am ordering. What's it called? Supreme breakfast. It had it's supreme breakfast tea. It was. It had supreme in the title, so therefore all of the other non-big time Charlie teas just immediately disappeared off the menu. So I mean, this is the inflation of approval. I feel it's like the scores. Did you ever play pinball? Like if you get the ball into the thing, you get like 35 billion points. Yeah. You know, there's just there's six zeros after everything. Well, that's what Supreme has done to this yeah, too. Yeah, I mean, it used to be enough for China to be fine. It was fine China. <laughs> and now it has to be <laughs> Supreme China. <laughs> so you're here in Melbourne with me in a tea shop. I am. Uh, in between Collins Street and Little Collins Street. In an arcade, in, in a an strange Victorian arcade. Yeah, yeah, it's an odd it's an odd thing to be in a tea shop in an arcade. I feel like a tea shop should sort of be as close to freestanding as possible. Yeah, I, I guess they knew what they were doing with these high ceilings, though, as regards sort of natural air conditioning and whatnot. Yes. I'd imagine that's why the arcades were built. You know what I mean? As in, if English people came here and built these, they're not based on the famous arcades of Scarborough or anything. Yeah. They must have gone, it's too hot let's build the arcades and then another tidbit that i know from coming to melbourne over a billion times mm -hmm. is that when the olympics was here in 60 58 mm. 56 56 so hang on let's work this out there was a there was a olympics in 68 64 60 56 we've gone back to thank you uh, What's arrived now is was called an orb, a chocolate orb. It's not as big an orb as I would like. It's about the size of a, a medium-sized orange. I was expecting something that was like two hands, like a human brain size. Apparently, Alice, when the Olympics was here in 1958, as we've worked out now, yes. they demolished loads of the good stuff because oh. uh, Australia had quite a low self-opinion of itself it still does and they, very much the cultural cringe yeah but they thought all of we've all this crappy Georgian and Victorian architecture Ugh, wait till Gross. these people from around the world come and see this let's demolish it and rebuild it with I think sort of brutalist type cement <laughs> rubbish uh, so a lot of the really good ones were were lost then and some of these arcades were too that's a real shame Though I don't mind brutalism as an architecture style. I've, at least it has a point of view, you know? Yeah, I get that. But then the problem is, so often, because it's a minimalist style, people then stick ads on the front of it or whatever. So what was meant, you know, with a lot of architecture, I imagine it would have looked great as an architectural model sitting in the uh, window of the architect's office. But then on the street, I don't know, you know, it looks a bit like a large sandcastle that you've made at the beach. Melbourne as a city, even with the modern buildings, does have very much a school project element to it in the <laughs> architecture. The, there's quite a lot of things that you can see how they 3D mapped that as their project. Yeah, there is something. Uh, I used to do shows in the town hall here where you're performing at the moment. And apparently the stuff in the, in the gold rush, they just thought this is never going to end. So council chambers, where council used to meet in the, in the town hall, has marble from Italy and mahogany from wherever mahogany comes from. 
and they were like good times never gonna end and then the last two rooms were just cement because the gold <laughs> absolutely just it's the thing about gold you that's know that's why they call it a gold rush not a gold <laughs> spring <laughs> idiots it's in the name <laughs> absolutely in the name yeah Australia is odd like that you've, so you've been here many times now haven't you yeah I've been here 15 times, maybe 12 times, something like that. So you've probably lived in Melbourne for about as long as I did. I lived here for about a year and a half. Yes, but I've only ever lived here in April when everyone talks about comedy all the time and I made all my comedy friends and I get to hang out in tea shops with them in fancy arcades, which I doubt was your experience living here for a solid year. For a solid year, no, but it was it was a nice experience, a sort of a good transition towards going to London. Yeah, I mean, is that the case that... Melbourne. You wean yourself off the good beaches. Well, <laughs> I do know there's a sort of a bullshit thing in singer-songwriter language in Australia of like, oh, move to Melbourne. Gonna move to Melbourne and get a scarf. You know, that sort of mm-hmm. myth. Which is funny because, you know, today it's not a chill in the air, but it's, cer- you know, by the standards of home, this is a perfectly reasonable summer's day. Uh, my, my friend Laura Davis, who's been a guest on this podcast, l- grew up in Perth. Yeah. And she didn't realise the point of scarves until she moved to Melbourne. She thought they were just a decorative Yeah, but, th- but I've seen people today wearing gloves. You yeah, know, that's people, silly. People are in a rush to take out their winter wear and get it going. I saw someone, there was a, you know, a day like this last week, and I saw a person with earmuffs on. Mm. That's just someone who wants to wear earmuffs. Yeah, that's performative earmuff wearing. <laughs> that's... That's a dis- that's an aesthetic decision rather than a functional decision. <laughs> yeah, people move to Melbourne because they like wearing coats. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I do see the romance. And I get that. There's nothing sadder than a goth in Queensland. No, no, there isn't. But there's also the reality of, you know, I live in Dublin, which I think it might be something to do with a year. A year, you know, the way... I mean, this is a very bad metaphor. But you know the way if you have a, a traumatic childbirth, you do your brain just deletes it yep. from your memory. So yep. it's an evolutionary thing, so you have more children. Mm-hmm. Similarly, every year I manage to forget how bleak the Irish winter is. Because it's not particularly cold, it's not particularly snowy, it's nothing. It's just relentless grayness. Mm. It's why we have so many great writers and also alcoholics. Yep. And every... Every October, I'm like, oh, I can't wait till December when I'll, you know, have to take out my big coat and get a big sack of logs and light a fire every day. And then come December, I'm like, please let this end. Yeah. I'm lying, I'm staying in bed. It's late well, as possible. the problem with, with winter in, in Melbourne is that it is still Australia, so we are not equipped. We don't have central heating. We don't have many of the things that make winter in yeah. Europe tolerable. It's not it, quite cold enough to have a fire, but... But there's also a delusional thing in in our brains, which like I think I'd love to move to Vienna once and write a book. But mm. I know for a fact I would be living in a mouse infest. You know what I mean? I know for a fact trying to organize a gas bill in my three month sublet would be so annoying. I would wish that I'd stayed in Dublin. I mean, you could get a romantic case of consumption or something like that. <laughs> a man once gave me fifty euros in Vienna. I was, I was busking, so when I finished my uh, degree in England, I decided there was like three weeks between when I handed in and when I got my marks back, wow. and I thought I don't want to wait, so I would busk my way around, and if I got enough money for a hostel, I'd stay in a hostel, otherwise I'd get on a train. Thank you um, very much. Yeah. It's fine. Thank uh, you very much. I would get on a train and go six hours to a, another city and I'd sleep on the train. And if I got enough money, I'd get a hostel. Uh, but yeah, this uh, American hedge fund manager. Um, I mean, hang on. There's so many questions Hedge fund here. manager wanted directions, didn't speak German. I helped him out. He dropped 50 euros in my banjo case. What? Um, talk us through your set. My set, my banjo set. Yeah, I want to know. This was before I was really doing comedy. Yeah. So I would just play the kind of Irish well, well, and Australian folk music that mum used to play. The banjo hits? <laughs> yeah, big banjo hits. A lot of murder ballads. 
wow. And um, how much could you make from an average sesh? How long would you play for as a busker? I mean, I Dublin would... is a great busking city. If you've ever seen the movie Once, it's yeah. about a classic Grafton Street busker. So there is quite a lot of that. And I have always heard rumours of you make 600 euro. If you get the balance right of playing U2 songs, a, yeah. a Radiohead song, one of your own, only one of your own compositions. I keep think those I got to a mainly minimum. novelty money in that, you know, I was a young lady playing the banjo on the street in, you know, wherever it was, Prague or Berlin or depending on this. where I was. And I would usually make about 30 or 40 euros in maybe two hours. Growing up in Australia, I always dreamt of one day playing banjo on the streets of Zagreb. It was, yeah, it was sort of a wild and fun thing to do. And I thought, I've, you know, there's no other time in my life where this will be a way of doing it. The only time I've ever tried to cash on on my other life skills, not my comedy, mm. I once did a show in Dublin with a friend of mine where we repaired the audience, this is bikes, live on stage. I mean, that's pretty amazing. The two of us used to work in bike shops. Mm-hmm. And... What was good about it was people are really willing to open up about their bikes in a way that they don't necessarily want to talk about what, you know, their lives. Mm. They'll be like, oh, I bought it off a nun or whatever, and we keep going from there. That's but, a fantastic idea. Yeah, but the problem is, so you got in for discount if you brought a broken bike, and people really took the piss with that. They would be bringing bikes they'd pulled out of the canal, mm. and there was 17 hours work to be done on one particular bike. Yeah. So it was a flawed idea, but I still. It's a flawed concept, but a great, like a, maybe a podcast concept almost. Yeah, that's not where a bad idea. Where you could take as long as it took, uh, rather than having it be constrained by the performance. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it's quite boring. Is is only as in some some things take. See what's the thing on a bike? If you if you, we need to put new bearings in your back hub, mm. you know that can take an hour and a half. Mm. And if you're a complete stranger. I just don't know if we're going to, you know, I don't know how many five stars we're going to get on iTunes for that. I had an idea of doing a show that was doing people's workouts with them. <laughs> because I always found that people get much less self-conscious when they're working out, which is counterintuitive. But, like, part of their brain is, is focused on the exercise. So they'll open up and tell you really vulnerable things about themselves. It's not about, um, I've just taken my first drink of the tea. Mm-hmm. Good tea? Is it supreme? It tastes like a lot of other tea. <laughs> now, maybe something will kick in in a minute. Mm. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe when I take a dump afterwards, it'll be shaped like a crystal swan or something like that. <laughs> I'll report back. Here's yours. Oh, thank you. My sencha. Thank you very much. I like the bigness of the teapots here. They don't stint on the size, and the pour is good. And There's also no drips at the end. They've gone consistent with saucer, cup, and teapot for color. I've got, I'm pink, pink, polka You're dot pink. You're pink with gold dots, and I'm white with uh, gold dots, which I think is probably a reference to our moral purity. <laughs> so, cheers. Cheers. Um, what have you been wrestling with recently? Um... I mean, so many, th- most of, I have quite a loud brain, so at any given moment, I'm wrestling with e-bikes a lot. You know, there's, uh, so the Dutch have just banned electric scooters and e-bikes from using cycling lanes. I think you're allowed to use certain e-bikes. If you're, uh, e-bikes are the ones where the bike sustains you at a speed once you get up to that speed. Are they charged by your motion, or are they no, you have to charge plug them, them in mm. in the evening? I think they might have a degree of self-charging as well. Uh, you know, because I am happy with people cycling, and I'm also happy with older people, say, cycling e-bikes, because they wouldn't necessarily be able to cycle up the hills on a regular bike. But where do we draw the line then? You know, it's that human thing where... So the law used to be, if you could... Uh, you were allowed to... A machine to sustain the speed that you had got because they, they fall into this gray area where all laws are in terms of cc's of combustion engines because their law, laws don't really exist yet for new e-engines because they've only been invented in the last few years mm. but they're going to have to start making up new laws now otherwise you know you see quite a lot of people in this city like fly going as fast as you would on a motorbike on a regular sized bike 
Seems dangerous. Yeah, it does it, it? There will be. Yeah, it's one of those things that something awful will happen soon, and that's when people will have to think about it for the first time. I mean, you see it a lot in Dublin because Dublin is where the European headquarters of Facebook and Twitter and Google and Yahoo. So there's a lot of tech. Near, nearly all, always dudes on those scooters, and they. they yeah, I mean. I was overtaken by a man uh, on an e-scooter vaping at the same time oh, recently. No. Yeah, and that was I, I, yeah, it was the first time in my life I've ever felt right wing when that happens. Just that we need <laughs> society needs more laws. This can't happen. And I guess which leads to the other thing that I certain so Ireland. It's been a fascinating five or ten years to uh, the last five or ten years in Ireland. Well, actually, since I was a kid, I, you know, I grew up in an incredibly, on paper at least, conservative, obedient, Catholic country. Mm. And that has collapsed mm. in my lifetime. It began to collapse. It was 1986. A woman went on, a woman called Annie Murphy went on The Late Late Show, which is the big uh, Friday evening at nine o'clock TV show that the country tuned in for. And she said she had a child with the Bishop of Galway. What? And by the standards of the scandals that would follow, <laughs> with all of the horrendousness mm. being revealed, that was an incredibly delightful, mild thing that we should have celebrated. Yeah. But it began a meltdown that hasn't ended yet. You know, in terms of looking at the country and the way that we've operated since independence in 1921 that we really made an awful balls out of our revolution but then the thing I've been wrestling with is more the idea that so we had these two massive referendums in the last few years there was a, a marriage referendum and abortion referendum and both passed by landslides and there was a there was a feeling that Wow, this we could be the new country that we have could always be the new Netherlands. Sort yeah, of thing. or at least even newer than that, because our what we came from is so unique. Suddenly, you had a 38-year-old gay son of an immigrant prime minister, and we were like, "Wow, this is happening!" And then, just in the last six months, it's just been a return to the old bullshit. <laughs> There's so you think there's a backlash or...? No, I don't think there's a backlash. I think we possibly... I certainly got ahead of myself in thinking everything's been swept from the table. It's an mm. absolute new era rather than just this crap centre-right v centre-left stasis that, which is all that there's been for my entire life. Mm. This is a new era, like a more kinder, caring society. And then... I mean, so the last one was just... A, hospital, a children's hospital that they've been trying to build that now the original cost was I think 300 million uh, euro and it's just gone to over a billion Oof. and yeah but it's a lot of people's mates are in charge of creating those figures and paying themselves for them and all the rest it's just that thing where you're like yuck I thought we were past this yeah I thought we'd entered a new era and it seems like we've got a bit to go then uh. Yeah, this is one of the problems, I think, because we're in a world now where we are getting more and more information about the problems with things, you know, yeah. that, you know, whatever it is, you can always chip away at any any good thing, whether sure. it's a person who you admire or whether it's an institution that you value, the justice system or whatever, you can always find the information on corruption or, or where it falls short. Yeah. But there, I feel like we are lacking in people who are able to provide real solutions. Well, There's a lot of Dunning-Kruger effect of like, I could do better, and you go, well, okay, give me a coherent plan, and there is just none. Yeah, but you, you also, I'm also very aware that democracy is a highly imperfect thing in that it, it comes up with a, a solution, as in a government that no one voted for, because it's an amalgam of what everyone wanted. Yeah, the nature of compromise is no one's happy. Yeah. And, you know, the... the but I still thought... Uh, it, it, it's... It, you know, we're watching the Brits set themselves on fire, you know, 150 miles away 
and you know we're looking at it with a slightly smug sense of superiority as in we had these two referenda that were meant to tear the country apart mm. that, that's what er everyone was told beforehand like this there will be riots on the streets no one can deal with this much, much progress and change mm -hmm. and then you just did that, that didn't happen none of that happened and like the the abortion referendum in particular was you know violence was threatened. I know, I know violence, it's often said there will be a civil war. It's almost a phrase you hear, you know, in, in every referendum and certainly in every election now. You know, it's Trump says it a lot about there will be a civil war if I don't get another a second term or whatever. But you definitely felt when it, it passed with a two-thirds majority then and it was it was I wouldn't say the last vestiges of old Catholicism, but there was a sort of a, uh, that patronizing, patriarchal thing of the old men that used to run the country all had to, you know, wave and say goodbye. So I, I, I thought the younger generation, because there is a new generation of politicians now, wouldn't be as susceptible to that. But Corruption. It's corruption and incompetence and just general lack of idealism of any kind that mm. oh this is how we do this is how we've always done this so yeah there's that uh, like like there is something interesting in government in ireland which has always just been about survival as in so my great-grandfather was heavily involved and my great-grandmother were heavily involved in the revolution in which was in 1916 and then led to a war of independence a few years later my uh, great-grandmother was called Kitty O'Doherty and she traveled to America in 1920 to collect a million what would be a million dollars now and it was sewn into her corset and she brought it back for to buy guns for the Civil War like it's very much that kind of a family and then a strange thing happens where when we got independence, a lot of the crazies who weren't necessarily the best people to go into a government got jobs in the government, which I think this is a tale that happens in every revolution in the world ever. And then their sons and daughters, mostly sons, got those MP seats after they died. <laughs> Sometimes it's and we're we only quite washed the slate clean of feudalism. Yeah, we're only on to the third generate third or fourth generation of the same people well, now. Yeah, revolutions require different skill sets from bureaucracy. You need to be very driven, but you need to be driven to uh, an anti-authoritarian bent, um, uh, sort of systems of loyalty. Yeah. That work very badly in government where you don't want nepotism you don't want a sort of a, a mafioso network of favors owed yeah which is what you need in a, a revolution and and you know the threat if somebody defects completely and, and then you've also got that period i don't think it's ever happened in australia and it probably happened in england a thousand years ago which was these violent militia and armies became political parties yeah and then there's a period so in ireland there's a party called Sinn fein who were the political wing of the ira who disarmed in the late 90s but there is still this mild threat whenever you hear any Sinn fein politician talk that we'll be very unhappy if this doesn't happen and you're like oh you guys might still have guns buried in your garden. Yeah, it's still within living memory that you'd send someone to break the, break someone else's legs rather <laughs> than a reprimand so. in the government. Yes. So there's there's that these sort of odd historical quirks of Irish government. Mm. But so it it has been a delight to watch. In a way it's a delight to watch the Brits tear themselves apart. Now the problem there is that Northern Ireland <laughs> is run by them. And they have been, with the whole Brexit thing, they kind of weren't aware. Uh, I mean, I was there for a lot of the debate before the Brexit referendum, and no one ever mentioned Northern Ireland, which we could all see in the Republic of Ireland was going to be the complicated thing, because you have a land border with the EU, which is the Republic of Ireland, and also approximately half the people in Northern Ireland regard themselves as Irish and EU citizens and have passports to prove it as well. So it 
it, it was going to be a real icky, headachey thing. And while we all had a good chuckle at them as they, you know, set things on fire while screaming Churchill's name for a while, now we notice the smoke is coming under our curtains because they are our neighbours. Yes, yeah, that's an unfortunate reality. I, I, I want to take it back a step to kind of skill sets that you were talking about, political skill sets. Yeah. My, my granny was very notable in this way. She was an absolute anti-authoritarian. She would never line up, uh, having you know gone through the Holocaust. She'd refuse to get in a line. She'd walk to the front of the line at the <laughs> bank and say, "It'll be quicker to serve me than deal with me." Um, wow. And she had about That's eight really different. Annoying. Yeah, incredibly annoying. She just refused. <laughs> she lied constantly about everything. She refused to obey even very simple orders. I, I was once in the car with her when she drove through a construction site on in the middle of the road oh and into a pothole in the road. <laughs> and that complete compulsive rebellion yeah. was what got her through the war. Because yeah. when they said, go to this ghetto, march this way, pack your bags, she would do the opposite. Yeah, yeah. She told a story of how she was in a ghetto with her half-brother and uh, they ordered them to pack their bags because they were going to take them to a camp mm. and everyone packed their winter clothes. She got into her Saturday best and got her half-brother in that and they walked through the park, took off their overcoats, sat on a bench and pretended to be making out <laughs> and everyone else was shot into the river. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> but you, you know, which is in retrospect looks like genius but yeah. was in fact just compulsive Rebellion. Yeah, I mean, I think if you've lived through something like the Holocaust, you the fallacy that a society, the society that we live in, is uh, the best possible system, or that all of these rules that we live by are right. You would mm. you would bring everything into question. Yeah, and you would also see that I guess all it really is is a load of conventions and bullshit that people generally sort of agree by. Mm. I mean, we had a degree of that in my family, as in, so my great-grandfather was this, like, guns under the car, under the floorboards type um, revolutionary. His son, my grandfather, worked for the tourist board, got a civil service job, which is a common enough <laughs> thing. But then the next generation, so my dad is a jazz musician. And the idea of becoming a jazz musician in incredibly conservative... 1950s Ireland where you know the the church were trying to have band have jazz band is unthinkable so his and his brother and sister were all like jewelry makers and all of that so there was I wouldn't say an anti-establishment thing because that's too obvious it was just a suspicion a realization of what establishment is and also that all of these rules and conventions are yeah, I mean, they're, I see they're there, but uh, I will obey the ones that I feel like obeying. Yeah, a desire to sort of distance yourself from the corruptions that arise in any system, in any organised system. Yeah, and also being able to see, you know, I'm sure your granny saw the ones that were important, and then the other ones that are just, yeah, that's fine. They're, yeah. they're, they, don't want, they won't mind, really, if I drive through this construction. It's quicker. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely that. <laughs> and I mean, she was uh, she was always causing drama. She was an absolute adrenaline junkie. But when things actually were bad, she was ice cold. And that was when you'd see it sort of click into place. Like my brother once bit through his lip and she was like a ninja. Wow. Yeah. So, I, I mean, I, I, I can't think we will ever have any equivalent. I'm not talking about the Holocaust, but I'm talking about anything that will train us to be that... You know, like the war generally, people who came back from the war, that's a pretty extraordinary thing to come back from and then just work a job. You know, I think of people in Australia yeah. who... There's a, great, there's a great New Zealand film from a few years ago by... I can't remember uh, a famous uh, New Zealand female director called Home for Christmas, and it was just about her father had never marched in an Anzac day. He'd gone off in the Second World War and had never marched and had never really talked about it. And she presumed it was something awful had happened and he didn't want to relive it. And then when he was dying, he said, bring a tape recorder over, I'll tell you what happened. And it was that, you know, the, the regiment sergeant arrived in the small New Zealand town in 1940 and everyone signed up. 
and they were given rubbish training where they ran around with brooms and they were all taken straight to North Africa. And in their first skirmish, they ran up a hill and were captured by the Italians and spent like a year, I think, in a, in a camp in Italy until one day the Italian sergeant comes in and goes, all right, we've left the war now. You're all free to go home. And they said, oh, we're from New Zealand. And he's like, that's not my responsibility. But don't go north because you'll walk into Germany and don't go into France. So go up and turn right and head for Switzerland because they're neutral. So they, they ended up marching for months and months and months and eventually lived on a ski camp in Switzerland for two, they kept getting news from the Anzacs. Yeah, there's no way of bringing you home yet. So they sat on their arses for two and a half years. In the meantime, his home life fell apart. I think his wife got together with someone, with the butcher or whatever. And it was more just the realization that they don't really care. Like this is a massive game of soldiers for someone. It's the least horrific uh, Second World War story of all. And yet, I do understand how it would also make you be like, fuck this. Yeah. I'm not going to march in your stupid parade and pretend that I, it was this glorious time for me and my life. My grandfather also walked over the border to uh, Switzerland from Italy. Wow. Um, before the war, when he finished school, he did his grand tour and it was getting a little bit fascist <laughs> in Italy and he was Jewish. So he, he decided to leave and he went over the border, turned around on the nearest hill and did his best Mussolini impersonation. <laughs> and the Italian border guards jumped the border, beat the shit out of him and put him in jail. Wow. And so that was why he became a lawyer uh, in the end. Cause well, I mean, the, the, in, in terms of seeing history, the two times for those two referendums in Ireland, cycling down to Dublin Castle, which is twice in the last, what, four years now to Dublin Castle and watching on a big screen as the results came in and you saw Ireland changing mm. and there being like 5,000 people in a courtyard all cheering and hugging and all the rest of it you know that that's probably the tale that I will tell my grandchildren then about you know, from having been involved in the campaigns to some extent, like calling door to door and all of that, it was a time when you felt, it was a sense of we're taking over the country now. Thank you very much to everyone who's gone before and for this kind of a weird mess of a country you've created, but it's time for, uh, it's time for a new thing now. And that was, the, that was the excitement of that. And hopefully that will be borne out now with I, new politicians and new political parties. But for the moment, it's kind of a back to the old nonsense. I get absolutely again. thrilled every time I vote. Um, yeah. It's compulsory in Australia. But course, just the yeah. fact that you go down to the local school and there's no one with guns. Like, I, yeah. The Australian system is boring and convoluted and bad in many ways. Yeah. But just that, you just go and get a sausage sizzle and it's... Oh yeah, there is the sausage element to the Australian elections. I, I, I um, it's something that, like, democracy is boring, and I do understand that. Mm. Like, like, so I I, I, that's fantastic. Yes, it is fantastic. It's fantastic that it's boring. Like, but but do you not think that's kind of what's happening at the moment? As in, I got a, caught up in a, it was a pro-Brexit march. I've just done a UK tour, mm -hmm. and in a place called Loughborough, in the middle of the middle. Uh, there were, it was very much pro-Brexit and whatever you're having yourself. So there were people with like enormous poppies. It was a big thing like, yeah. wear your poppy with pride, wear more poppies yeah. uh, in, in commemoration of the wars, which you wouldn't, no one would in Ireland because British Army would be seen in a different context there. So it was, it was that and they were definitely, you know, of, not to make generalizations about people with short haircuts, but like they were looking for trouble. Mm. And then, these other dudes turned up who were wearing EU flags, like, <laughs> not like KKK hoods, that's too much, yeah, but they yeah, were wearing yeah. EU flags. And I remember thinking, both of you are wrong. <laughs> As in, the EU, I'm very proud to be a European. Proud's not even the right word. It says I'm a citizen of the EU on my passport. And that's great. It's a system of boring treaties and t laws and that, you know, I know why they were set up. It was so 
another war wouldn't happen. And it means that I can go and live in Berlin or Zagreb. Or write that book in Vienna. Krakow, exactly. And it doesn't threaten my sovereignty. Like, that that was one of the weird... So the, the, the... the two really alien concepts in the whole Brexit debate have been uh, take back control, which is the most genius slogan that anyone has ever thought of. I, uh, there isn't an election or referendum in the world ever that wouldn't be won by a take back control slogan. Mm. Uh, and then just talk of sovereignty, the, the external threat that this boring system of Belgian, you know, men and women in buildings poses to you. Like, I'm absolutely fine with that, you know? Yeah, it's a, it's a, an interesting clash of mythologies. And Britain has for a very long time had an idea of itself that's never really matched what it is. No, nothing, no, no national myth ever truly yeah. reflects the nation. Yeah. But the idea of the sort of lone voice of reason in the wilderness yeah, is... Yeah, it, it's very strange. I mean, we have a, would have a very different perception of it to you because you know you we don't have their little flag on our big flag (laughs) and for most of the last hundred years we have defined ourselves entirely as oh well we're not Britain yeah (laughs) that's been our and you know as a mobilizing national sense of self you know it's well it is a thing and most people don't have a thing and you know I think part of the reason of Brexit is there isn't an a unifying thing, well, with England at least, mm. it's just this disparate bunch of people. You need to, to, to be very cliched about it. There was a sense for the 2012 Olympics that oh, this could be a new Britain. This this is a new vision of all of these disparate places and all these disparate people. Like the Danny Boyle, I still look at it sometimes. It's the opening ceremony to the 2012 Olympics was Danny Boyle. It took place in the in the state in the Olympic Stadium and uh, the director Danny Boyle put together a history of Britain and if you remember it it was so it was it covered in industrial revolution and then there was a big um, NHS thing which was loads of people like 500 people bouncing on beds and it was, they were all the truly great it was Tim Berners-Lee who invented HTML and Dizzy Rascal <laughs> were together at the same time That's and there, beautiful. there was a sense of like oh yeah there is a there is a, a through line here about you know innovation and constant change but that has evaporated since that time whereas speaking of uh, supermarket architecture yeah um, Frank Lowy who does the Westfield supermarkets yeah he did the deal that meant that everyone who went to the Olympic Stadium had to walk through a Westfield supermarket to get there. <laughs> oh, genius. <laughs> Capitalism genius. <laughs> but well, well, the reason I mention this is just not to shit on about my homeland again, but we have rested a new vision of Ireland in the last five, ten years. This really odd group of uh, new Irish heroes have emerged, like you know, there's a there's a drag act called Panty Bliss that did a speech that went mega viral around the time of uh, the marriage referendum, and there was this "we're not that old" idea of alcoholic white people uh, who are down in their luck and everyone shits on them, but they have a sing song at the end of the day. Like fuck that. That was Ireland for my entire life, but it's time for a, a kind of a new exciting thing and coincided with a sort of confidence uh, in the country culturally as well you know all the tech companies coming there due to dodgy tax deals but they were still there and it wasn't this old pipe smoking uh, bunch of dudes which is what the old Ireland was yeah and it is exciting and yeah the, the thing that struck me so much when I was in Ireland that I didn't expect to strike me was how very Viking it is Viking. how much that kind of yeah Viking influence sort of or yeah. affiliation penetrates the culture when, when it comes whether it's like the obsession with storytelling and these kind of heroic figures or that 
I can sort of see where that slight violent edge comes into the culture. <laughs> like, there's a lot of Viking in there. Well, I mean, I've never heard it put that way. The, the, um, there was an interesting decision made that was apparently based on bad data mm. at time, the ta- around the time of the marriage referendum, which was what we need to do is tell go door to door and tell people personal tales. That's what's going to change this. Mm. You know, there's and I do get that, as in the change certainly at home in terms of like people having more compassion towards refugees has been hearing individual rather than look at a statistic of Mm. like, you know 0.3 of the Irish population is currently people who've moved in the last five years from refugee countries. Like, that doesn't really mean anything. But what's interesting is to hear a, a tale of how you came to end up in Ireland. Mm. And similarly, for the certainly the first referendum, we were calling door to door. And you would generally... I did a bit of it. And you would be with a gay or lesbian person who would be like, hi, is there any chance, I really love someone and I'd like to get married to them. Is there any chance I could just ask you, even if you think it's a bit icky, if I could get married? And generally people would be like, oh yeah, you seem all right then. (laughs) And it was this idea that how cultural change takes place is actually not necessarily in these fire and brimstone speeches. Mm. It was just through quite ordinary boring people saying ordinary boring things. Well, it was that coming out movement that the gay activists did so well in the 80s. The idea that everyone knew somebody who was gay, but they didn't necessarily know that they were gay. And so it was kind of an obligation to come out as a way of normalising it. Completely. And, And what's interesting now is that for people who formerly would have just been homophobic now the the fact that we have a gay prime minister who is a classic neoliberal Justin Trudeau type who uh, is you know much happier to you know will provide some nice YouTube clips of him going for breakfast with Mike Pence and uh, sitting beside his partner will also then defund various <laughs> uh, charities uh, and give tax breaks to uh, vulture funds and whatnot. It's funny how quickly as a country we've gone past the old homophobic, oh, that's just, you know, they're like that, to just like these fucking neoliberal pricks. <laughs> yeah, which I think is a nice thing. It it's means that you're, yeah, it is, that you're... <laughs> Identity can fragment beyond a survival instinct into, you know, <laughs> the fact that we can now have mediocre women in positions of power is a great stride forward. Used to be you'd only get to be a position of power if you were extraordinarily competent. <laughs> yeah, the, the, the mixed identity thing is, I think that's something that we do better in Ireland as well, which is, I'm just bragging about Ireland now, really. But, I love um, it. So Northern Ireland, so... so to the to so Republic of Ireland is its own thing, and then Northern Ireland is part of uh, England, Ireland, England, Northern Ireland, Scotland, Wales, as in the UK. But I know I have friends. I have a friend who played for Ireland in rugby. The Irish rugby team is the whole island. It's Northern Ireland and the Republic That's of Ireland. That's nice. And he will regard himself as simultaneously British. Irish and Northern Irish, and that's not a problem. There's no issue there. I really like that. Yeah, there was another guy I know, England played Ireland recently in a uh, rugby match in, no, 2007 was the first time they played in this old uh, Gaelic football stadium where the last time a significant force of English people had been in there was at the, uh, in 1920 when a the crowd were machine gunned by the British Army. Anyway, <laughs> the, before the match, they played God Save the Queen. They played Aran Navin, which is the Irish national anthem. And then they played Ireland's Call, which is the sort of Ireland unified 32 county anthem. And he sang all three. And there's something, you know, at the same time, it destroys. It's a nationalist thing to do, but it's three different versions of nationalism and so shows what 
bullshit nationalism is as well. Yeah, I really, I really like that as a way of thinking about identity as much as anything else. Yeah, and, and I think, Alice, it's one of the mistakes that a lot of English people have made in recent times that the EU is trying to steal your sense, of, like that they're going to make us all sing you know, whatever the EU anthem is, Waterloo by ABBA, or, you know, whatever that happens to be. It's it's the idea that it poses some sort of threat to your idea of self. Mm. You know, at the same time, we are loads of different things. You know, I see myself as a an Irish person and a Dubliner and someone from Leinster and a comedian and someone who writes books for children, you know, etc., 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 and I don't feel that one necessarily detracts from any of the others. No, I think that is one of the m most interesting things I th that we could move people towards, is an understanding of themselves as having these multiple lenses, multiple yeah. hats, multiple dialects, multiple they have ways it. of operation. People, ha people all have it. You know, the, the way that you're able to have a jokey rivalry, you know, at the time of an Olympics or a World Cup in football, you know, sorry to go back to sport, but people already have this they just don't like to admit it to themselves yeah well that you can be furiously anti-New Zealand in a rugby match and furiously pro-New Zealand the day after on Anzac Day yeah. like <laughs> you know that's that's good the more of that complication we have the better I think yeah it, 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 I suppose it's that idea of things which I suppose is the revelation of this period uh, that we're living through is that things are just more complicated than everyone thought before as in yeah. that, that was so the abortion referendum very often you were calling to older sometimes conservative by the look of them Catholic houses and the idea that I would always try to get across people who'd be like no I'm actually against killing babies and you would just try and just get across that idea that the world is really complicated and just imagine a situation where you know there'd been a case in Ireland before that where a woman uh, was was dead was brain dead but was being kept alive because there was a fetus and the, there was still a heartbeat in the fetus so she couldn't be switched off and buried until the heartbeat of the like absolutely non-viable fetus uh, stopped and so this is what I mean about things being more complicated than being saying I'm against killing babies or whatever. And it was those tiny arguments, I think, that made people go, oh, maybe there is a situation in which, in which that I could imagine being okay with that. It's uh, that they did these experiments, I've spoken about this before, but they did these experiments on people think they understand things until you ask them to explain how they work. Right, yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and that's a really good way of getting someone to admit that things are more complicated. <laughs> you know, they go, you, do you know how traffic lights work? And they go, yeah, yeah. And you go, okay, show, tell me from scratch how you would build a traffic light. And they go, oh, fuck. Yeah. So, so I've just, today is Tuesday. Last Thursday, I've I spent the last year and a half writing a novel for kids. And I sent it in. Well done. That's and a it's great a, achievement. Thank you. I wanted to write a book about being 12, though. 12 is a sort of hugely overlooked age, I feel, where you start to... Re it's before the horn arrives and sort of complicates everything. But it was where I started to realise, oh, everything is really complicated. And I actually retreated into a bit of a shell for a while. Just because, what? These people's relationship? These people are breaking up? But they're your mum and dad? Oh, God. You know what I mean? And I didn't emerge for a year or two back with any sort of from having been a really happy-go-lucky child mm. it was it was that realization that hit me then so I've tried to write a book about how it feels to be that age then that's mixed in with a bank robbery <laughs> <laughs> when does that come out I can't wait to read it I, I, well we've got a bit of editing to do on it probably but it'll be out uh, after Christmas I think is what they're is what they're aiming for and where can people find you online? Um, loitering as um, PHL. You know, you, you're at alliterative. Yes. Do you regret that now? <coughs> Absolutely. Yeah, I'm PHLAIMEAUX Flymo, which 
was my breakdance nickname from when I was about <laughs> nine. It's short for, so Flymo are a brand of garden mower. And I'd, I was called Flymofo, as in fly motherfucker. But then I thought it'd be cooler from, from my graffiti tag, not that I ever did graffiti, was to spell it in fo- what I thought was fake French, P-H-L-A-I-M-E-A-U-X. So when Twitter arrived, I was got straight on there. I was like, this probably last about a month. Like, and thought about my my handle for mm-hmm. less than a second and just popped that in there. And now, yeah, you it's probably... It. Mine's alliterative, but with only one L, because it's like my name, A-L-I. <laughs> uh, Think of how famous, rich, well thought of we would be if you were Alice Fraser and I was David o- at David O'Doherty, you know what I mean? It'd just be so much better. I'd have so many more Twitter followers. Yeah, everything could be different. Good. It's a disaster. Well, I've still had some supreme tea, so I feel all right. <laughs> Thank you so much for having tea with me. I've, I've enjoyed it very much. Lovely rifle, doll, lovely rifle, day.